0: This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah! There's a
1: Thank you once again for joining us. This is Evidence for Faith, the official voice of Ratio Christi. This is the show where we give you the evidence that shows that Christianity is true. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And I'm Kevin Harrell. And the three of us are going to be talking about the origin of life today. But we've got a lot to do before that, so we will get started on that. I just want to remind people to check out our website evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence the number 4 faith.com. We have archived shows there. We also have listings of speaking engagements coming up. If you like podcasts, you can find us on iTunes or on Double Twist. Also check out the mother organization, Rasho Christie at rashochristie.org. And if you'd like to email us, you can email us at email at evidenceforfaith.com. All right, guys. Well, we have a lot of items to go over. We usually have a quote of the week, and I found a really good one. I was going to start a new series, but this one came across the wire. That's the old official radio talk for the Internet from Apologetics 315. It's a great website. Lots of resources for apologetics there, and they send out an email once a day, and once a week they do a quote of the week, and I very frequently steal their quotes because they're usually very good. So this one is from Oswald Chambers, who was the author of a book, a classic Christian book called My Utmost for His Highest, which I recommend very highly. And the quote goes like this, It takes God a long time to get us to stop thinking that unless everyone sees things exactly as we do, they must be wrong. That is never God's view. There is only one true liberty, the liberty of Jesus at work in our conscience, enabling us to do what is right. Don't get impatient with others. Remember how God dealt with you, with patience and with gentleness but never water down the truth of God. Let it have its way and never apologize for it. Jesus said, "Go and make disciples." Matthew 28:19. Not make converts to your own thoughts and opinions. And again, that is from Oswald Chambers. All right, we got a couple of upcoming events I want to tell people about Worldview Academy. This is a terrific ministry we had one of the main leaders of Worldview Academy on the show last year prior to some of their summer camps. And these are summer camps for junior high and high school. Great place to send your kids to help them get some inoculation from some of the silliness that the atheists want to push on them. It's a leadership camp that will teach them critical thinking skills. They'll Learn logic and argumentation and worldviews, evidences, false worldviews. It's really just a terrific program. We sent our boys there once. There's one coming up near us at Lancaster Bible College. So for those who are listening on WIBG from Ocean City, our mother flagship operation, they can send their... Youthful Prodigy to Lancaster, PA, that's July 21st through 26th. So you will want to look up Worldview Academy online. I don't see the website here, but I'm pretty sure it's something very straightforward, like worldviewacademy.com, something like that. But it's a big website. You can find it by Googling it if you need to. So I highly recommend that. I think we last week we talked about the Westminster Conference on Science and Faith, So this is coming up again this year. It's going to be in Philadelphia, April 6th. So check that out. You should be able to find that at scienceandgod.org, scienceandgod.org. So that will be good. And I will – well, I was going to say I'll be there, but I'm not sure yet because there's a conflicting EPS meeting that I'm a fellow of the – evangelical philosophical society and i may be presenting a paper that day so april six we'll see i haven't gotten approval from the review board for the paper yet so if they deny me then i'll be at this and i'll be able to say hello to some of our listeners
0: and i see dr john lennox is here i really like his stuff and he has a wonderful accent so just you get twice the money you get to hear some good valuable information and you get to hear him speak I'd go for TIFs for that.
1: Absolutely. Now, is he the guy that you were emailing back
0: and forth? No, that was um, A Dr. different John, physicist? Yes.
1: Okay. But he was also an Oxford physicist? Um, or?
0: I think Dr. Lennox is from Scotland, Ireland. I apologize if I got the wrong place. And this other gentleman, professor, was from England. Okay. So I do understand for some listeners that is a big difference. I don't (laughs) want to commit any cultural gaffos.
1: Right. So, and now, where did you hear him speak? You said he's got a British accent, which he does.
0: I listened to a lecture on him when he was refuting um, Professor Hawkins' book that first came out and pointing out the fallacies therein. Okay. And it's like, wow. Yeah, yeah, he's contrast. really,
1: really smart. He's he's really cool guy to listen to. So that's definitely worth it. And if you don't go there to hear Dr. Lennox, you can go there to hear Dr. Stephen Meyer, who also was a guest on the uh, show. Or if you want to meet me, you can come up and say hello to me. You, my picture's online, so you'd be able to recognize me and just say shout out and uh, say hello. I'd love to meet some of the listeners, especially the local people in New Jersey and Pennsylvania and Delaware. There's also another event coming up. This one I'll be speaking at in Kennett Square, Pennsylvania, coming up the 27th this month. So it's Wednesday night. It'll be at the Kennett High School. And I'll be talking about Evolution, What Your Teachers Won't Tell You. And it's for a program called Creation Night, which has been set up by a young lady named Devon McVeigh, a mother, housewife, who lives there in Kennett Square and has set this program up for the public school kids to have the opportunity to hear a counter-argument. So, last year, they showed a video, The Case for the Creator, by Lee Strobel, and they had about 250 people out. Really? 250? So, So, they're hoping to get a, another great crowd out there, and I'll be talking about Evolution. So that's coming up the 27th. Another chance for locals to come out and say hello if they like. All right, let's see. I guess we covered all the upcoming events. Oh, there's another event coming up at Stockton College. I don't have a room number yet, but that's going to be the next night. That'll be the 28th. I'll be speaking on the topic, Is Belief in God Rational? That'll be at Stockton College on Thursday, February 28th. So please come out to that also. All right. I guess it's time to turn the corner here. Kirk, why don't you jump in with our sound effects and give us a Mythbusters segment. Dun, 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 dun. That was good. I love that. You <laughs> sounded so thrilled, too. That was really like exciting, and I'm energized to hear this one.
2: <laughs> it's Sunday. I'm a little <clears throat> on the tired side. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Our, our myth that's being busted this week is Christianity is based on faith, but atheism is not. That is a myth. A myth. Okay. Uh, How do we know that? Well, atheism, especially in its current manifestation as anti-theism, which it's often called, is no less based on faith than Christianity. Are you surprised to hear that? Hello, hello? You there?
1: (laughs) Sorry, we didn't hear you. There's a distraction at this end.
2: Oh, Kevin's uh, telling you jokes again, off, off, uh, Mike. Okay, there is no empirical proof of atheism, believe it or not. <laughs> this isn't the believe it or not show. This is the MythBuster show.
1: Okay, well, I believe it. I because I don't know how there would be empirical proof. There are arguments for atheism, but there's wouldn't be any empirical proof. This is one of the things that the atheists constantly get wrong. Uh, we ask them for evidence to show that their viewpoint is correct, and they say, Oh, that's impossible! <laughs> that's not impossible.
2: Well, listen to this. Uh, and before I go any further here, let me uh, put a little plug in here. A lot of the material that I use for these little MythBusters segments, including this one, comes from an excellent book that I just got a little while ago called Exposing Myths About Christianity. It's by Jeffrey Burton Russell. If you're familiar with him as an author, uh, it was just published last year and has a lot of interesting information in it, including this. The anti-theist assertion that there is no God is not a scientific statement, but an ideological one. Right. And since it is ideological in respect to religion specifically, it is also a religious statement. Anti-theists cannot avoid making religious statements. Right. Okay.
1: Because they're talking about the presence or absence of God.
2: Right. They often say that atheism is not a religion. Well, saying that God doesn't exist is a religious statement. Right. Okay. Faith in anti-religion is as much faith as religion itself, if you think about it. Of course. Okay. Some atheists honestly admit that their beliefs are a matter of faith, uh, but most of them don't. Uh, One of them that I can use as an example here is a guy named Michael Devitt, who was a semi-prominent atheist. He declares that there is only one way of knowing, the empirical way that is the basis of science. But how does Devitt know that? (laughs) Right.
1: (laughs) He did some experiments, and presto, the machine popped out that fortune. No, he found it in a fortune cookie. (laughs) Is
2: that scientific?
1: (laughs) Well, it's written down. It's in black and white. Well, that's empirical. He saw it. He felt the paper. He read it out loud, and he heard it. So that's three senses.
2: Okay, well, I guess I'm wrong about this then. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, most lives, think about this. Most lives, including atheist lives, have mostly to do with understandings that aren't scientific. You want some examples? I thought you would. Okay, Materia- <laughs> Materialist. Atheist dogma is actually much more restrictive than religious dogma is. Okay, as physicist Stephen Barr says, while religious dogmas do not, in fact, limit the kinds of things one is able to think about, materialism obviously does. The materialist will not allow himself to contemplate the possibility that anything whatever might exist that cannot be completely describable by physics.
1: Right, right. So it's a kind of a self-censorship.
2: Yes, it is. Uh, If I can't study this in a lab, then it's not real Right, type of thing. Okay, and... uh,
1: Whereas the theist, on the other hand, can look at both possibilities. If he sees something happening, a phenomena, he can say, huh, I wonder how that happened. Did that happen naturally, or did God do it?
2: Well, he's more open to... um, uh, other possibilities that the right. materialist is simply not open to that's right um, I have another quote here by Stephen Barr um, in examining the ultimate circularity of uh, what he calls physicalism which is materialism by another word he sums it up this way he says materialism is true because materialism is true because it must be true
1: <laughs> Okay. <laughs> there you go That that sounds like religious creed number one
2: uh, yes, you might be able to do. It. Yeah, we should do that. We should write an atheist creed book.
1: Ooh, I love that.
2: And read the that hymns. on here. They the need air.
1: hymns too. Do you think you could set them to music?
2: Yeah. Um,
1: let's the two, do. Let's do a one. Can we do one round of there is nothing? It, that'll be a fun one.
2: Oh yeah, that sounds good. Or uh,
0: let's Maybe see. We should define materialism in case a new viewer isn't familiar with that term. Okay. Because they might be thinking, talking about going shopping at the mall or something.
2: Well, okay, Uh, you're reading my mind here.
1: Sorry. Uh, I have a definition. I actually have a definition here of
2: physicalism, which is the same thing as materialism. Okay? It says here that um, physicalism is the word most often used uh, for these types of concepts today that we're talking about. It implies that we should see the world with only one eye, the physical. If there is something beyond the purely natural or physical aspects of the cosmos, physicalism will never discuss them because by definition it is unable to discover them. Right. The, the opinions of physicalists on the question are therefore empty of meaning unless they cease claiming to speak as scientists and speak solely as metaphysicians, which means they talk about uh, things that are metaphysical. Right. In other words, not physical. Right. So they're kind of contradicting themselves. Now, here's an interesting little quote here. Uh, The author says, No physicalist I know of truly lives by his or her own expressed beliefs. To do so would be to become insane. (laughs) To really and truly believe that there is no meaning, even for a few days in the universe, is more terrifying than death. Mm -hmm. If a person doesn't, won't, and can't live by his or her own worldview, how can anybody else take it seriously?
1: Right, right. Yeah, and you can see one of the obvious contradictions, especially with uh, someone who is a physicalist or a materialist who believes that nothing exists that is not actually physical. Right. Just think about, what about the idea that I am a physicalist, right? Is that something physical? Or when you send a fax, let's say I write on a piece of paper, physicalism is true, and I fax it to you down in Ocean City, New Jersey, Kirk Hastings.
2: Or Summers Point.
1: What do what do you get? Do you get the paper? Do you get the ink that I wrote it down with? What was sent to you?
2: No, I get a piece of paper and ink out of the machine that I have in my home.
1: That's right. So did I? So so and that was already there, right? Right. So did I send you anything at all? Since obviously I did not send you anything physical.
2: Right. Unless you consider electricity electricity physical.
1: But I'm not sending you the electricity.
2: Yeah, that's true too. Your machine's operating by electricity, but not the same electricity that I'm getting in my home that operates my machine.
1: That's exactly right. (laughs) So what did you get though? You on the facts. You got you got an idea.
2: Wow, man.
1: Yeah? So the idea so we deal with things that are non physical every day. Our ideas, our propositions, those are all non physical things. And we send them back and forth to each other.
2: I never realized before that getting a fax was such a cosmological event.
1: (coughs) It's true. It's amazing. It's hyper-metaphysical.
2: You know what I've always wondered personally? Of course, young people today, I guess, won't be able to relate to this, although maybe they can because of CDs. Um, They don't know what records are. But growing up, I had a—I still have a big collection of 45 records, and I've always wondered: how does this little piece of plastic, you put it on a record player and you stick a needle on it, how does music come off it?
1: Yeah, that's right. And and was it? What is it that you're listening to?
2: Right? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea how a little piece of plastic can replay a musical performance that was recorded months or years or even decades ago and I'm listening to it again off a piece of plastic how does that right. work
1: yeah yeah there's definitely something non-physical there it's the idea right behind that was that is being stored as a physical representation in code
2: right so. well he, here's another interesting uh, Statement You know who Carl Sagan is, of course. Yes, he's a famous, he was a famous atheist. Even he admitted at one point, he said that he noticed that we can't scientifically prove that we love somebody.
1: Oh, interesting,
2: right? Most lives, including atheist lives, have mostly to do with understandings that aren't scientific when you think about it. Absolutely, and I have one more quote for you here on that uh, same subject. Uh, I have another physicist here, his name is John Pokinghorn. Of course, I've never heard of him before, but he's quoted in this book, so I'm going to quote him for you, too. He says, the very assertions of the reductionist himself are nothing but blips in the neural network of his brain. Now, this is, this is the thinking of an atheist now. He thinks that the world of rational discourse dissolves into the absurd chatter of firing synapses in his head. Quite frankly... That cannot be right, and none of us believes it to be so. But anti-theists who claim to have better minds than other people, when you think about it, don't actually believe in minds at all. In fact, they are engaged in a polemic against the mind. According to them, the alleged mind is nothing but an illusion produced by complex physical activities in the brain.
1: Right. So there's no reason to listen to them then, I guess.
2: Uh, basically, (laughs) that's what
1: I just said.
2: (laughs) That's right. Okay, so that myth is successfully busted.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Kirk Hastings. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I think I'm Kirk
2: Hastings. But I know I'm Kevin Harrell.
1: (laughs) And we're going to be talking about the origin of life when we eventually get to it. But we've got something else to bring up. Kirk Kevin and I are going to be speaking at our church tonight. We're having question and answer night.
2: Ooh, I wish I could be there for that.
1: You can be. You can drive up. I could if my wife will let me. (laughs) So do you do this at your church?
2: Uh, No, we've never actually had something like that. It might be a good idea to suggest, though.
1: Yeah, this is going to be the first one. So we're expecting a good turnout for Sunday night. So basically, people just, we gave them pieces of paper to write their questions down, they can write their questions down and put them in the offering, or put them in a question box that we keep in the back of the church. And then once a quarter, we're going to have Question Night. We're going to open up the box, pull out the questions, press them against our foreheads, and see if we can answer them.
2: And are you called? Do you call yourself Karnak the Great for that night?
1: I do. I have one of those hats. Oh, really? But uh, Kevin stole my feather, so <laughs> so I'm going to be Karnak the Not So Great. Okay. so
2: That sounds like a neat idea. I'll have to suggest that to uh, the minister of my church.
1: Yeah. So I've got a couple of questions, and Kevin has a couple of questions, so I thought we would answer them for the radio program, too. And it'll save somebody a trip in tonight. If one of our church members is uh, asked this question and we answer it on here, then they won't have to come in. So they can have a nice, leisurely, long dinner. And you'll have
2: three people at the service tonight.
1: Exactly. We'll see. So here's the question that I was asked to answer. It says, God makes no mistakes. He knows the beginning and the end. So he must have known that Satan would fall and man would sin. Why were we not created perfect without sin purely to worship him? Mm -hmm. And there's a second part to this question, but I'll just stop there because that's the first part. So this is a really great question. I love this question because it's obvious that The person is thinking, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, you know, why is God doing all this? Think about the history of the world, and it's full of pain and suffering, and there's so much going on. It just doesn't, if the point of all this is just to have people worship God, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So, you know, I'm really happy the person is thinking about this, but I think where they're going wrong is in thinking that the purpose of the universe is so that people will worship God, right? I mean, God's already got angels for that, right? You look at the book of revelation, there's all kinds of flying creatures and angels and, you know, there's lots of worship going on already. So if that was all that the universe was about, I think God could have just stopped after he made the spirit realm, right? And he'd have plenty of, plenty of people worshiping. So he must be up to something else, right? Right. So, one of the points that needs to be brought up is that free will people can't be forced. So, if he's creating free will beings, you can't force them not to sin, not to cause problems. Otherwise, they're not free will people. Unless you're
2: an Indian giver and you take the free will back.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, there's definitely something else going on. And I think... The clue is given in Romans 8, 28 and 29 because it talks about what God is up to. And a lot of people will remember this verse because it says everything that happens, happens for good. And so they like to use this verse because when they're facing trouble, it's a good way to, to help them face trouble. So it says, We all know that all things work together for good for them that love God and to them who are called according to his purpose. Well, they don't read the next verse. Now, this verse is saying all things work together. So I'm reading that quite literally, all things, everything that happens in the universe is working for good for them that love God. Okay, well, all right then, what's the point? Well, just read the next verse. Maybe you should, instead of just memorizing verse 28, you ought to also memorize verse 29 that says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So the whole point is for us to be conformed to the image of Jesus, Mm -hmm. right? Okay, well, then the... Obvious question then is how do you do that, right? How do you become like Jesus? Well, I think you grow a beard, get your hair long, wear a robe and sandals, and walk around.
0: Not at this time of year in New Jersey because it's cold.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's obviously not what he's talking about. Well, okay, Jesus was the creator of the universe, so he's omniscient. So let's be omniscient then, right?
2: Now, that's a tough one.
1: Yeah, I've been working on that one, taking a long time. <laughs> I keep trying to learn things. It's like, you know, there's an infinite amount. You can never, you're just as far away as uh, you were 20 years ago. Because the more, if you keep learning the, new things, then you're really not all-knowing. That's right. It's just proof that you're not all-knowing. Plus, you never get any closer to infinity.
2: And the more you learn, the more you realize there's, the more you don't know.
1: <laughs> that's right. That's right. So how can we be like Jesus, gentlemen?
2: I'm dying to know the answer.
1: <laughs> well, you've been a Christian for a long time. You better know this, pal.
2: Well, I'm dying to know your answer anyway. <laughs>
1: <laughs> My answer is the answer.
2: <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> no? Nobody can think of it? Um, How can we be like Jesus? I think it's he- not by appearance. What does he mean, the image of his son? Can't be omniscient. Can't be omnipotent. It's not talking about dressing up like him.
0: So what is the definition of made in the image of God? Is that what you're asking?
1: What, are, what is he? What is the author trying to say? That's the one question you have to ask with any Bible verse, mm. right? What is he saying? We are to be conformed to the image of his son.
2: Okay. How do we do that?
1: I keep, there's right, a I'll,
2: verse that
0: talks about we participate in his sufferings. I can't remember the verse off the top of my head, unfortunately.
1: The only way you can be like Jesus is to behave like Jesus. Think his thoughts after him and do what he tells you to do. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Uh, There's a ton of verses I guess I might have to, based on this uh, stymieing uh, situation here, I might have to bolster this up with more verses that talk about becoming made in the likeness of Christ is (coughs) obedience. So that is what the of the entire universe is. Everything that happens is designed to make us be like Jesus so that Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So that is my answer to that question.
0: Well, the verse that comes to my mind is one of my favorite verses, John 14, 15, that says, If you love me, keep my commandments. So becoming Christ-like is not only an act of obedience, but it's intertwined with love,
1: that's right. For him, it's our it's our relationship with him. That's how we show our love for Christ. Absolutely. So then the second part of the question is, why does hell exist? In that if God knows who will reject him, why not just wipe them out of existence rather than have them exist for eternity in torment? All right, I'm going to open that one up. So I was going to let somebody else answer this one, but since nobody picked this before... Tonight, I'm going to finish it off. What do you think? How how can we answer that? I've got a couple of ideas, but I welcome the input. Why doesn't God just annihilate?
2: Well, I would say for one thing, because God is a creator God. He's not a destroyer God. He doesn't destroy things. He creates them.
1: Ooh, I like that. What about the fact that God sometimes kills people?
2: Well... He he may kill them physically in this life, but he's not annihilating them. They still exist after that.
1: Right. Excellent. Very good. Yes, I agree with you 100%. See, like it's an interesting close? thing. When an atheist will argue that the Bible is immoral because God kills people or has the Israelites kill people, right, they'll say God, either God is immoral or the Bible is immoral. The argument is, well, God is the giver of life, and he can – Take that life. You know, he he gives some people 80 years. He might give some person eight years, and that's up to him. You know, nobody's been cheated because if you have zero life to begin with, God gives you something that's better than nothing. Hmm. And I've heard in debate, I've heard atheists come back with, well, that's not really true. It's still immoral for God to kill people. And they give an example of, say, let's say 100 years from now, Computers have developed so, you know, advanced stage that you might create this monster computer with trillions upon trillions of interconnections and you might actually create a life, a sentient being. Now, the atheist will say it would be immoral to kill that sentient being that you've created. Just because you've created it doesn't mean you have the right to kill it. Now, you know what? That's kind of an interesting idea. If you think about it, I mean, think about really, you did really actually create, it, even if it was accidentally, a sentient being who is able, to, who has free will, able to make moral decisions and moral judgments, right? Maybe it is possible that God is in that position too. God creates souls. It's possible that because he created free will moral agents, it may actually be immoral for God to annihilate them. So I think, Kirk, you are, are, were right on the right that God is a creator. He is not a destroyer. It may actually be immoral for God to annihilate a soul. So the best he can do is separate himself from that soul. In doesn't, which case
2: doesn't it, is, isn't this also kind of mixed up with God's justice, too, that um, we deserve the consequences of whatever we do, so that's what we get. And that's, there's nothing immoral about that either.
1: That's right. And something that we also that we also have to think about is that a person in hell may actually not want annihilation. Because it, to exist, even if one is being tormented, may actually be better than not to exist. Hmm. So uh, that's something to think about, too. So uh, several different angles to go with that. I think uh, all of them are add to uh, the concept. So let's see. I've got a – well, actually, you want to do one of yours? Kevin, you want to do one of your questions?
0: I don't know if I can do it as quickly as you did. <laughs> the, the first question I was – someone asked – that I was going to address was uh, are the people who never go to church but say that they believe in Jesus truly saved? By saved, we mean converted to Christianity. Also, if they never read their Bible, are they saved? So that was the question that I got appointed to answer. And basically, I figured that this was a matter of justification versus sanctification and determiner versus indicator.
2: Now, if you're
0: you're an English teacher out out. (laughs) there, don't call me. I put your words on purpose sometimes. Justification versus sanctification and determiner versus indicator. Uh, In the sense, when we say justification, uh, in theology, justification is talking about where we go from being a non-Christian to becoming a Christian. Um, Born again, saved, salvation. It's technically where God rules us in his sight, in his way of looking at us, rules us as no longer guilty from sin, and now... He decrees that we are non guilty before Him in sin. It has nothing to do with if we're a perfect little person now. It's purely a legality issue with God. Whereas sanctification is the theological big word where you becoming more like Christ. And I think we just heard something about <laughs> how to be like Christ. Right. So, I'll try to give the short version here in. What I'm more or less saying is that the person who asked this question, it it starts out being, is the person truly a Christian or not? Are they justified or not? Are they saved or not? But it really is a question of indication in the sense that a person says they're justified or or saved or Christian, but it doesn't look like they are. And they're asking are they then justified even though they don't look justified? And without going down a million rabbit trails, I see in Scripture and in the book of Galatians where Paul talks about two things, the fruit of the spirit and the fruit of the flesh. And these are Bible turns to mean that these are things that we do in our behaviors, that we project what we choose to do fruit like fruit that ripens on a tree, our actions ripen from our decisions, so basically what I think he says in Galatians is that the Christian the truly converted will not be perfect he does have the capability of doing the fruits of the flesh of sinning but he will not only um, not practice those things he, to not desire to do those things so that's where justification and sanctification comes in
1: and so so, so what's the answer yes he is or no he's not uh, the short answer is I don't think one can tell
0: in every situation right off the bat. For me, justification, salvation is an event that happens, but sanctification is a process that takes a long time. So the person who claims they are truly a genuine Christian may be still early on the road of sanctification of the process of seeing things that would indicate that they're a Christian, not determine if they're a Christian so I think over time, when we observe a person's life and our own life, we should see evidence of our faith, fruit of our faith, by not practicing the things that Paul says are fruits of the flesh and doing and desiring the things of the Holy Spirit, it says. So justification for sanctification, determiner or indicator, that was basically where I'm going to go with that question tonight.
1: Okay, so you're going to give a kind of a diplomatic, wishy-washy answer. (laughs) Wishy-washy?
0: Well, I look at it as when the Bible is exact and specific, I may speak specifically. Uh And when it um, is silent on some things, I'm going to be silent. And I don't find in the Bible where it says, if you do 3.2 sins a minute, you're not a Christian, but if you do less than that, I mean, you are a Christian, so I go off of the fruit of the flesh and fruit of the spirit. All right. So Could
2: I make two uh, two quick points on that? There's there's two things that that came to my mind when you were talking about this. the The first obvious one is the thief on the cross. Now he didn't have any time to do any Christian works, but he went to heaven. So obviously. Um, the the amount or even existence of your works doesn't seem to have a whole lot to do with it because in his case, he had no time to do anything. Not
0: right? in the sense of your justification of you being a Christian or not, but works do have something to do with your process of being a Christian, your sanctification.
2: Right, and there's also a verse, um, I don't know where the exact reference is, but maybe you can help me with it. There's a verse that talks about um basically christians who don't have much in the way of works it says they will be saved but at the judgment day all of their works will burn up in other words they won't get any rewards for anything but they'll still be in heaven
1: but then on the other side you have the verses like where jesus says you will know them by their fruits so if there are no fruits then you will know they are not saved if their fruits are sinful fruits you'll know they are not saved right, right. i mean th- this is how in, in john this is how in first john john was able to identify that there were non-believers in their group because they left they left the church sure so john said we know they weren't of us because they went because th- they left us basically that's what it says
2: well, what about the people that come to church every week and say, "Oh, yeah, I believe in Christ," but they really they don't have any works. They go out drinking during the week, they kind of you know do what they want to do, but they're always in church every Sunday, and they say, "Yeah, I believe in Jesus
1: exactly yeah, a lot of those people are not saved either, so okay.
2: but some of them may be saved, but just are lousy Christians and are not doing anything about it." <laughs>
1: See, the problem is that the justification is invisible, but the sanctification is visible.
2: Right. That's a the good way to put It
1: is a true indicator. So, so you cannot, you know, denounce the indicator and say, well, just because the indicator didn't work this time doesn't mean that secretly the person isn't really saved. Well, then what's the point of having it as an indicator? It either is an indicator or it's not an indicator. Now, obviously, you've got questions about, like, the short, if somebody died right away, right, like the thief on the cross, obviously then you don't have an indicator. Right. But if you do have an indicator, you ought to believe the indicator.
2: Well, well, I guess I would would kind of amend what I said a little bit in that um, I think there are some Christians around who are truly Christians that don't have much in the way of works. They may have a few, but not much. Right. If there's somebody around who says, I'm a Christian but has no works at all, then I would seriously question that.
1: Right. We're all going to be judged for our works, some will have more than others, so there will be some that will have very little right? will still be saved.
2: They'll be at the bottom of the pecking order in heaven.
1: <laughs> but on the alternative is that there will be some who did do lots of works and who are not saved.
2: That's true, too.
1: Right? So there's still this invisible, I guess that would be an example of where the indicator can be a false positive.
2: Well, you're talking about there, you're talking about somebody who has the works but doesn't have the faith, and That's you right. have to have both.
1: That's right. So you can have a false positive, but can you have a false negative? In other words, can you have a, somebody who has truly been justified, but no indicator, no sanctification? I would say only if they died immediately. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's time interval thing right. that's not specified in Scripture. How long is long enough to wait to see the fruits of the Spirit? That's right. Um, I don't have that answer. I don't see right. that answer in Scripture. However, normatively, and the thief and the cross and all is not really a normative situation in scripture, but normatively, a person over time will start to exhibit fruit of the spirit and they will start desiring to do the things of God and not do, or as Paul says, practice the things of the flesh. Right. So I think time can be a pretty good indicator. You know, right. instead of saying, well, it's been 3.2 seconds and I see no works, uh, <laughs> saved again. No, I think over time, uh, if the person backs up what they say with their mouth, I think that's a good indicator.
2: But again, like you like you said earlier, how, how long is long enough? Like right. if somebody is a new Christian, he's been a Christian for three days and you haven't seen any works yet. Or what if he's been a Christian for two weeks and you don't see any works yet? You know, where's the cutoff point where you say, okay, he can't be a Christian because there's nothing there.
1: Right. Well, there is a verse that says, be certain you are in the faith, right? Right. So, you know, there are people who need to make sure maybe they are not in the faith and you need to make sure that you are in the faith. One of the things also that, you know, we're also commanded not to judge another uh, worker, right? So it's not up to us to decide, oh, Joe Blow is uh, is not really saved, right? That's not our decision. Our decision is simply to go by the fruits, the indicators. Right. They have bad fruit, they are disfellowshipped. They have good f- fruit, they're fellowshipped. As long as they have the good fruit,
2: right. It also says, um, you know, if if your brother is sinning and refuses to repent of it it says treat him as an unbeliever right. it doesn't say he is an unbeliever he he may very well be one but it says as long as he's not acting like a believer don't treat him
1: like one that's right if he's living in a lifestyle of sin he must be disfellowshipped
2: right
0: and i would end with my favorite verse again is john 14:15 if you love me keep my commandments absolutely and since we're commanded to love the lord our god with all our heart mind soul and strength it's not that our love gets us saved but it shows our salvation because we're obeying
1: absolutely yeah they um we are to repent and do works in keeping with repentance so that's a a commandment you know if you do not do works in keeping with repentance, then in what sense have you repented, right? I mean, that's to be converted actually means to be converted. It doesn't mean to say you've been converted when you haven't, right, or to say you repented when you didn't repent. So if you didn't repent, you're not converted, period. These are are really tough questions. I
2: I thought you were going to come up with questions people were going to ask, like, uh, does God have a long white beard? Oh. but we have Now, this nine. is not
1: Sunday school. <laughs> All right. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks.
2: I'm Kirk Hastings. Kevin Harrell.
1: And we were going to be talking about the origin of life, but we will mix that out of the podcast because we're going to keep going with our questions because I've got another one I have to answer. So this is an interesting one. How old is the Earth, and how can this be used in witnessing?
2: Oh, my gosh, another easy question.
1: (laughs) Yeah, another two-parter. This one also says, what was the purpose of dinosaurs? (laughs) So, well, let me go with the purpose of dinosaurs first, since that's fairly easy. Well, they make pretty good movies of them. Yeah, exactly. I think that was the entire purpose.
0: (laughs) because kids love dinosaurs.
1: Oh, there you go. Sort of like asking, what's the purpose of butterflies? (laughs) <laughs> what's the purpose of flowers? What's the purpose of trees? Well, okay. Trees, you can think wood, um, you know, but really some things just are for their beauty. Some things just are for their magnificence. And you think about God describing Behemoth in the book of Job, you know, look at my beast of beasts, right? This is the most magnificent beast on the earth. So I think that's, uh, something to consider. Otherwise, you know, I mean, why anything? Things are beautiful because God is a beautiful creator God who loves to make variety and beauty and, you know, show us what can be done. So then the question about how old is the earth and how can this be used in witnessing? Well, you know, I personally don't think that the age of the earth is something that is very helpful in witnessing. Because, well, and that's why we hardly ever talk about it on the show. Because if you're a non-Christian, the chances are very strong that you have adopted the cultural milieu that the Earth is very old. So if I am going to try to convince you that the Earth is young and then so that you can be saved, I'm in for a really, really long task.
2: Yeah, tell me about it.
1: So... I see its evangelistic purposes as being very small. The only time I think it can be useful is maybe it's somebody who's very young, right? You're working with maybe I'd say even younger than junior high level where they have not already been indoctrinated or propagandized so that you can explain things and they go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And when they do hear the propaganda. They go, Oh, wow, that's obviously false. But when you have somebody who didn't get a chance to hear the other side and now is indoctrinated, all their friends are that way, then it's a lot harder to make that transition back again. So because you're basically you're invested. So it's a much harder to be open minded. And Kevin over here has Written a note to me that he's a big Ken Ham fan, and so he doesn't like my answer. <laughs> so.
0: Well, I was thinking maybe the person who asked you that question was a Ken Ham fan and thought that really big into what he teaches, then you can use it for evangelism.
1: Yeah, I, mean, I think you're right. That's probably true. Kirk, what, what do you think? I mean, you've in your book you cover the age of the earth. What do you think? Is, is it is it worth it to die on this hill?
2: I didn't actually go into a lot of detail about that either in my book. Um, I really focused on uh, whether, you know, the earth was created or not or whether it popped into existence by itself, not really how old it is. Because like you said, that, that can be a tricky question. And if an unbeliever comes to you and that's the first thing he asks you about, you can spend 20 years arguing back and forth about that and never get to the gospel.
1: Right. Yeah, see, the problem is that there is a tremendous amount of very strong evidence that the earth is old. Well, there happens also to be a tremendous amount of very strong evidence that the earth is young. The problem is that most people only know one or the other, right? If you're a young earther, you probably don't know all the arguments for old earth. If you're an old earther, you probably don't know all the arguments for the young earth. You know, the one thing I do think that it's useful for is to help Christians mature. You know, if you already have become a Christian, you already have realized how much the world has lied to you. You know, when they tried to tell you that there was no God, when they tried to tell you that sin was okay, you know, when they tried to tell you all this stuff, and once you recognize it, once you break through that, and you go, wow, I can't believe how fooled I was. Now, all of a sudden, you can relate to the being fooled, and you can think, You know what? These atheists or even theists who believe in an old earth, they could be fooled, right? Because I know how fooled I was, and they might be a little more open-minded to hearing the evidence for young earth.
2: That's a good way of looking at it.
1: Well, Kirk and Kevin, I think we're going to have to wrap it up there. So let's just remind people that they've been listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. You can send your comments or questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence and the number four, faith.com. Please join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. <laughs>